Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. Dr. Winston E. Allen, a son of immigrant parents, grew up in Harlem in the years of the Great Depression and before the outbreak of the Second World War. Throughout his early life, he excelled academically, creatively, and would ultimately earn a Fulbright scholarship, become a professor at some of the nation's most distinguished business schools, and also do what, back in the early 1960s, seemed impossible. He formed the first black-owned broker-dealer in America. He is an inventor, mentor, and author of three books. He led Xerox's international training program. His journey was not without trials, prejudice, and challenges, especially as a young black man in an America that was in a much different place than it has become today. Dr. Winston E. Allen is my guest coming up. I think legacy is so important because you have to know that in future generations, people can learn about what you did and be inspired by it. I read history books all the time, biographies, and I'm inspired by the stories that I read. So my legacy, I hope, shows take on difficult tasks, dedicate yourself to them, work unbelievably difficult circumstances, When people say, no, it cannot be done, don't take that as an absolute. Say, yes, it can be done. I will find a way. If this is what I choose to do, I am going to be successful. That's the way I feel. And if I can leave that as my legacy, I think it will be a worthwhile (laughs) story that could be told. And I'm told that this story of my book. I pried open Wall Street in 1962, critical years, is the makings of a film that could be very, very helpful and monumental. We'll have my full interview with Winston Allen in a wee moment. Before we get to that, it's time for our regular Future Shock 2.0 segment with Workforce Trends expert Ira Wolf. With more here for us on Quiet Quitting. Ira has the latest updates and some fabulous insights. Quite quitting is still a trend. Ira, apparently it's the status quo. Yeah, John, it's great to be back. Yeah, it's quiet quitting is still there. I mean, it's quiet. <laughs> quiet quitting <laughs> is, is very quiet. I guess that's appropriate. And let me just read some stats that I just pulled. And one is just the definition. And it, and it's one might be employees who are at the work site regularly, but for a variety of reasons are not producing what they should. It accounts for about 80% of lost productivity, according to one report. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Um, the challenge is that was written, <laughs> what I just read, was written in 2004. Oh my and we, gosh. And, we, and we called it in, we called it presenteeism or, or or there was another clever name uh it was actually warm chair attrition. <laughs> uh <laughs> yeah, so like so like so many things uh we we just give it a new name. Uh it's a new time, it's a new name, it's a new generation. They never heard of that. Um but I that book by the way I quoted from, I got four pages like that of stats. Um was from my first book, Perfect Labor Storm, 20 years ago. 
I wrote that. Uh, we're still talking about it. And prior to that, they were talking about uh, presenteeism and and loss of productivity. Uh, in fact, there were every year there was a, re- a major report that came out unscheduled absences. Uh, there was an organization every year that unscheduled absences and how that was climbing substantially. So the reality is is that quiet quitting's just another word for people showing up, take, taking a paycheck, trying to get away with as much as they can or doing as little as they can. I guess they're getting away with as much as they can, but you know, just getting paid for the time that they're there, checking in, checking out. The, the trend is still very much alive. We work with uh, one of our, our partners on our podcast, Geek Skeezers and Googleization, is Avanti cybersecurity, and they specialize in uh, the everywhere workplace. And they just released a, a new report just a few weeks ago. And they found out of their survey, one in three office workers under 40 admit to quiet quitting. And one in four are considering leaving their jobs, which isn't very quiet. Uh, <laughs> they may just not show up. Uh, so the trend is, is very, very, very much exist. And just the other day, my partner Jason attended a conference on company culture. And this is a, a, a yet to be released. So I can't wait for this whole report to come out by Gallup. But you're you're pretty most people are pretty familiar that, you know, Gallup's been studying employee engagement for the last 30 years. 40 years, uh, in fact, uh, and that last year it it reached its peak, the highest level of un- employee engagement in their history, 33%, one out of three employees were engaged. <laughs> that's, that's pretty tragic after all the money that we spend in employee engagement and culture and management and leadership development. But this was startling. This came out of the new report. Only one out of five people, current employees, strongly agree that they feel connected to their organization's culture. Oh only one out, only 20%, one out of five, 80% uh, in some respects are are either susceptible or are vulnerable to quiet quitting. Uh, and it's even worse for frontline. Out of the frontline, it was only 17%. So we got a problem. I mean, quiet quitting is nothing new, whether you call it presenteeism or <laughs> unscheduled absences or uh, or warm chair attrition. Uh, it's been around. Uh, it's really nothing's changed. Uh, leadership, management, <laughs> the companies just haven't woken up and decided to treat many companies have not decided to wake up and treat people correctly. And the return to office mandates isn't helping. And for those out there who may be somewhat confused, although our listeners in general know what quite quitting refers to, why don't I just give for clarity as well the Investopedia definition? You referred to it yourself here earlier, Ira. Quite quitting refers to doing the minimum requirements of one's job and putting in no more time, effort or enthusiasm than absolutely necessary. As such, says Investopedia, it is something of a misnomer since the worker doesn't actually leave their position and continues to collect a salary. As they might say on the other side of the pond, real dossers. <laughs> you know, and, and again, we've been around for a while. So as, as, as much as things change, some things seem to you know, remain the same. We just give it a new name. We'll have more from Ira Wolf on our next episode. Ira is a workforce trends expert, a top five global thought leader in his field, author, public speaker, and host of the popular Geek Skeezers and Googleization podcast. Speaking of podcasts, listen in each week to one of the most popular Wall Street shows on Apple, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's called the Odeon Capital 
Capital Conversations podcast and you can listen to it each week for the latest from the famed bank analyst Dick Beauvais of Odeon Capital Group and Matt Van Alstein, Odeon co-founder and managing partner, along with yours truly. With so much attention on the economy, inflation, jobs, banking, interest rates, deal making and more, the Odeon Capital Conversations podcast is where you can get the latest updates and informed insights. So keep it on your list. It's the Odeon Capital Conversations podcast. Coming up next is my interview with Dr. Winston E. Allen. He's out with his latest book, I Pried Open Wall Street in 1962, Overcoming Barriers, Hurdles and Obstacles. It's just an engaging and fabulous read and you really enjoy my interview with this amazing person. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. My guest is Dr. Winston E. Allen, founder of the first black-owned broker-dealer in America. He's out with his new book, I Pride Open Wall Street in 1962, Overcoming Barriers, Hurdles and Obstacles. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Winston Allen, you're welcome to my show. Wow, great. We've been setting this up for quite a while and I'm very excited about having you as my guest because like a lot of people in business, in academia and in public life, you have a remarkable story and we're going to get to that in a moment. I need to do a brief introduction. In the early 1960s, you made history by becoming the first black-owned broker-dealer on Wall Street. It led to a lot of public attention and some very positive media coverage, which caught the eyes of corporate executives at Xerox, where you went on to have a hugely successful career. You were a real estate developer, a Fulbright scholar, inventor, a professor at George Washington and American University graduate business schools. Wow, that's a distinguished career. Tell me a little bit about yourself and maybe we could go back to the beginning because you grew up in Harlem uh, to immigrant parents. Yes, I grew up in Harlem in 1930s and 40s and Harlem was quite unique at that point. Uh, It had just started to be a very elegant part of the uh, city of New York and Manhattan. And uh, I was fortunate to live very close to the border of Harlem, which was 110th Street and the top of Central Park. So I was three blocks away on 113th Street. And at that point, early life in 30s, we had many artists and and musicians and uh, historians, so forth, living in the area. So I got to know a lot of people that were very, very uh, exceptional in many, many respects. So my life was very uh, ideal in Harlem, and I felt very comfortable being there, and I had many, many friends and associates. Your parents were immigrants. Your dad came from Jamaica, and your mom was from Grenada. And um, I read your biography, and we're gonna talk about that later because you published a book recently, Fascinating reading, by the way. Uh, Well worth picking it up. 
How would you characterize them in American terms and in terms of their homelands? In American terms, they were solid, stable, working class. In Jamaica, were they more middle class uh, or and in Grenada, similarly? How would put it put it in context? I think that in both of the islands, in Jamaica, let's say this first, uh, my father came from a family uh, where his brother <clears throat> became a leading luminary in the island. I happened to have spent the summer when I was uh, 13 years old I, uh, traveling with him uh, throughout the island as he was running for the seventh term as a member of the House of Representatives of Jamaica, which he successfully uh, accomplished. Um, my mother came from Grenada, which is about 1,200 miles away from Jamaica, and they met, of course, in New York City. But while she was in in uh, Grenada, she was uh, the daughter of the superintendent of schools for the entire island of Grenada. So she lived a very, uh, I would say, upper echelon life uh, in the island. And uh, her 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 uh, exposure was in uh, education. The standards were very high, and uh, her father, being a superintendent, made sure that she had the best of everything. And uh, it was very exceptional. What took them to America, and more specifically Harlem? Well, that's an interesting question, which I <laughs> tried to get to myself, and I never really got an answer that was satisfactory to me, because I said in my own mind, why would they live this, leave this very illustrious life in two beautiful islands uh, in the Caribbean and come to uh, Harlem and go to Ellis Island and all of that? Uh, in 1923, my mother, and 1929, my father, when that was the most difficult period economically and in terms of the Black experience for uh, uh, people coming to the island that were Black. So I always wondered, why would you leave to come here? But they did, and fortunately for me, they did. And they met <laughs> with friends, and that's why I'm here. <laughs> well, I'm looking at you, and I read your biography, and I read um, some archival material, and I read a very famous piece that was published by the New York Times back in the 60s, which was a turning point. We're going to get to that. Um, America has been good to you. So briefly on Harlem, it was a beautiful place then, idyllic. It's had its share of trouble since. What was the trajectory of Harlem from your time to today? Because it did have some difficult times socially, at least as we got into the 50s and 60s. Yes, economically, Harlem has been boom or bust. And that's been its uh, whole historical perspective. Uh, in the uh, 1890s, Harlem was the most fashionable part of New York City because uh, people gravitated there when the subways uh, began to operate up to the fringes of Harlem. And of course, there was a boom because the architects and the uh, uh, contractors and the business people all came together and built 
so many apartment buildings and such that they felt, wow, this is going to be utopia. Well, what happened is in 1904, there were so many buildings that there was a crush and the financial situation was very disastrous for the entrepreneurs that were building these buildings. So they decided uh, reluctantly that they were going to open these buildings to blacks. And that's how I got into the picture because my family moved in early 1930s into this fashionable apartment building that was not built for blacks. It was built for very elite uh, whites. And we had seven rooms. It was huge. It was facing St. Uh, Nicholas Avenue, which is a large boulevard. And, and it was just a, a erudite. And we had many, many people there who were professional people uh, at that point. So I had good contacts with people. Then, of course, later on, through the economic depression, there were very bad times for most people living in, in Harlem. My father, because he was very able to handle a lot of things, he became a, uh, a superintendent of an artistic building, uh, which was near Lincoln Center. Now, he was there for artists that had their apartments on Park Avenue and so forth, and they had the studios at the building that he was at, Delmar Studios. When the building was sold, after about 10 years of his being a superintendent, it so happened that they decided they wanted to find a very good job for my father, Eric, because they felt he was just a wonderful person. And they made contacts with the people at Rockefeller Center, and he got a job as the uh, first black uniformed elevator operator at 30 Rockefeller Center. So he was enamored by this. He loved the job. He never missed a day of work for 30 years. And our life was very exceptional for most people uh, living in Harlem at that point. One thing characterized your upbringing and had a big impact on your future success was stable family life and the emphasis on education, which presumably came from your mom, but obviously I'm sure from your dad too, because they were hardworking and wanted you to succeed. Your mom was a stickler for education. Absolutely. She was very, very stringent on that. And it so happened that because I lived in Harlem and it was a districted situation, most of the schools were underperforming in Harlem. So the elementary school that I went to was not exceptional by any means. It was very, very underperforming and the students did not have the best education by any means. So my mother decided that she would do a little uh, chicanery and she found that there was someone she knew that lived in the right district and she would change my address to that district and i became a student at joan of Arc junior high school which was on 93rd street on west end avenue in manhattan which was a upper class area and i had an exceptional middle school or junior high school education then i moved on to 
Music and Art High School, which was like a private school with exceptional students that were gravitating from all over the city. And then from there, of course, I went to NYU and so forth. But these opportunities just came at a very rapid rate. And I was fortunate to get the benefits. But my mother was a stimulus for making sure that my education was exceptional. In your own words and in the words of other people who know you, you were a brilliant uh, achiever. Uh, you you succeeded in, in the academic world. And of course, um, you were a professor at one point. Um, a major turning point in your life occurred in 1946. You were on a train from New York City to Miami, Florida, eventually on, en route to, to Jamaica. And it was an eye-opening experience. Tell us about that. Well, that was a very uh, sudden experience for me because I was not prepared for it. I lived this idyllic life. I had all the friends that you would have normally. And I went to Central Park on a regular basis because it was three blocks away. And I could boat and fish and do all the things that you love to do when you're a youngster. Okay. Uh, that summer... Uh, of uh, 1946, my mother told me in June, when school was ending, that you're not going to be out there playing stickball, because that was my thing, uh, in the summer, this summer, you're going to uh, take a train ride. I said, wait, wait a minute, where am I going? She said, you're going to uh, Miami. And of course, it didn't have a great deal of meaning to me. So I said, okay, let's see how that works out. And they decided that they would talk to a porter uh, in Penn Station that they happened to know, and they prepared him to be uh, my uh, guidance for the trip down, because, of course, you prohibited as a black person to even be in a compartment. So they took me to Penn Station into this uh, particular compartment, and I was told on the morning that I was leaving that I'm going to be there. The porter is going to take care of all of your facilities. You're going to get your meals delivered. The The apartment is, the compartment is going to be uh, locked from the outside. So you're not going to be able to go out or move around or anything. In fact, you need to be very relatively quiet. So that was what I was told. And the train ride took off. And we went to Pennsylvania and New Jersey, and that was pretty typical. But then I got to Washington, D.C., and guess what? After the porter came in, before we got to the uh, station and closed all of the curtains, and he said, don't mess with my curtains. I said, wait a moment. <laughs> I'm not accustomed to being told, don't mess with this, don't mess with that. Don't mess with my curtains. Well, of course, when he left, I picked it opened the curtains very carefully, and I saw these signs, and I'd never seen them before. It said, uh, whites only and colored. And these were huge block-lettered white signs. And I said, what's going on here? I couldn't figure it out. I said, maybe it's because, you know, they I don't know. But anyhow, people were obeying the signs as we came to each station, all the way down to Miami. And it was a, a, a very, very traumatic experience for me 
because I was in this compartment by myself. So I was literally talking to myself as I saw the kids coming out, maybe five years or six years old, and they were in shabby clothes and they looked like they were pretty poor kids, black kids, of course, and they would take the packages from the white passengers and they would take them to the door that said whites only and they would leave them there the people would throw coins at them and then they would run back and pick up new passengers packages and such and this went on station after station all the way down to miami until i was picked up by my uncle in miami and taken over to jamaica where i spent i think uh, mm, 10 weeks or more uh traveling throughout the island with him so that was my experience on the train ride so this was the era clearly of segregation um, institutional discrimination and so on and it had a traumatic impact on you left scars it sounds like psychological scars it had psychological scars on on the way down and then i get to jamaica and it was totally different everybody was there nobody was talking about segregation or any of that in fact when i mentioned it to them they said of course that's what goes on in the united states and they passed it off like okay that's the way it is but when i came back as i saw this happening all over again i was resolute because i was very angry i was very resolute and i say this will never happen to me i will never be allowing myself to be placed in a position where i'm going to be taught treated in a manner that was totally demeaning which is what i experienced as i watched from the window so that being very very uh emphatic in my whole approach to life that i was going to be exceptional i was going to be successful i was going to be an entrepreneur because i didn't want to work for anybody else i want to do my own thing and and that has taken me in a direction that fortunately has become very very successful so what was the environment like briefly in new york city meanwhile so we had this um segregation down south new york city did you come up against any of that um racism uh, no, discrimination I, no i did not personally uh, yes and no let me qualify that when i grew up as a, a youngster uh in pre-teenage years i had no contacts uh other than going around with family and friends and people that were very very convivial um when i took a trip uh we had the conveniences of the uh, double-decker bus which i used a lot and i would sit on the bus sometimes on a sunday afternoon and take it all the way down to washington square which is about an hour and a half trip and then i would come back and i would see people white black so forth and so on throughout the city so i got a view from from a bus for example now later on when i got to junior high school uh i realized that hey these kids are not very convivial they are not very anxious to have involvements with a black kid and uh, one that's supposed to be precocious so i didn't get a lot of friendships there of course i went to high school and i, I was okay but again 
I was in the sharp minority, very few black kids in this, in this prestigious music and art high school where you had to take an exam to get in and so forth. It's a public school, but it was, it was equivalent to a private school in many respects. So I saw a lot of racial attitudes coming across, but okay, I figured, all right, this is the way it is and I can leave, live with this and, and so forth. So my experiences were never uh, debilitating. And I therefore felt, okay, there's nothing here that I cannot be exceptional and exceedingly uh, successful with. An incredible, extraordinarily positive frame of mind um, you project, I must, I must say. Now, you, you bought your first home in Larchmont in Westchester in 1966. There was a case in point. You came under pressure not to complete your purchase uh, because at least one neighbor objected. Yes. And it's well, probably even more uh, extreme than that. Tell us was, in your own words. It was more extreme. I, I was a, a teacher at that point at uh, uh, Dewey Clinton High School, where I taught for eight years uh, after teaching uh, at a 600 school. Uh, and I went to the 600 school just because I wanted to get a job uh, after I did a year at NYU Law School, which was following my four years at uh, uh, Washington Square College of Arts and Sciences and uh, NYU. So here I am uh, at uh, D.W. Clinton High School, which is an all-boys school, but uh, average uh, uh, results were very successful. The school was very well controlled and everybody was positive and I had a very good experience as a teacher there. I decided, hey, why don't I find a home in an area that supposedly is a close community, okay? All right. And I picked up the newspaper and I saw in Launchmont, which is a mile square community in Westchester, uh, this uh, house that sounded pretty interesting. And I called the broker and I said, you know, I'd like to see this house. And she said, fine, why don't you come up now? Uh, can you get here within the hour? And I said, yes. And I drove up and she took me to the house and it was on Chatsworth Avenue, 72 Chatsworth Avenue, walking distance to the railroad station to Grand Central. Everything was exceptional, uh, fireplace and all the rest and so forth. And I immediately said, let's go back to your office and we'll talk about the uh, the sale of this house. So we did. And the broker said, you know, the house is $12,500 and uh, you pay a third deposit. And I said, fine. And I wrote a check. And I gave it to her and I went home and I told my wife, I said, you know, it looks like we just got ourselves a house in, in Launchmont. And everybody sounded positive. And the next thing I know, the next day uh, when I was teaching, uh, the principal's office called and said, you have a very important call. So when you get your break, uh, why don't you call back and see what they're calling about? And I did. And this broker that had sold me the house, uh, she said, you know, we've had a lot of problems. Uh, I said, what kind of problems are you having? <laughs> Naively. <laughs> she said, 
<laughs> I kind of suspected that I knew what the problem was, but I said, let her explain it. She said, this owner of the house came in. She said, you happen to have left one of the doors open to the broker by mistake. And she said, did you come in here? She said, yes, I came in and I got great news for you. So this uh, owner who happened to have been out, fortunately for me, at the time that we got there, uh, she said, oh, you did you sell the house? She said, yes, I had a buyer. There was no negotiation. He said, I'll accept it at whatever the price is. And he gave me a deposit and, and everything was fine. And he's got two lovely children. His wife is a, a big person in uh, New York City and she's got an executive position. And he is a teacher at uh, 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 a piece at a, a, a high school in, in the Bronx. So she said, that sounds good. What's the story on this family? She said, well, you know, they happen to be a black family, but they're very, very successful and they're doing very well and all of that. This woman said, wait one moment, please. <laughs> and she said, no way, Jose, you are not selling my property to a black family. So she said, well, it so happens that every morning we take our receivables to the bank which we did. And we took him to the bank this morning and we cashed the check and everything was fine. The woman said, no way, it's not fine. That house is never going to be sold to these folks. So she said she tried to explain, well, once you take a deposit and it's uh, accepted by the broker, that's a transaction and you can't change that just willy nilly. She said, well, you better figure out how to change it because we're not accepting this. And you tell this person that you think is so illustrious that you are going to find him another apartment in New Rochelle, which is a community just five miles away. And he's going to have a better house. You're not going to charge him any commission. In fact, you will even work out some kind of financial deal for his uh, inconvenience. Uh, she said, well, I'm not sure that's going to work because the law is very clear on this. But she said, you better find out how it's going to work because that's your responsibility. You need to know that this community is not open and I am not going to break the, the transaction and the code. So anyway, to make a long story short, the woman was totally insistent. And when she realized that she was not successful with the brokerage firm, of Sutton and Whittemore, which is a very established firm in Launchmont, he said, I'm going to call a community meeting and we're going to have a ability to let the public know in Launchmont that this Sutton and Whittemore has done something which we think is, uh, is re reprehensible. Uh, they said, well, you can hold a meeting and uh, we can't stop you there, but we can't make anybody do something which is illegal. So she held her meeting and she kind of called me through the broker and said, Mr. Allen is welcome to come to the meeting, which I said, fine. And I went to the meeting and it was packed. Uh, all these folks and the neighbors and such we were hanging off the, the, the staircase upstairs and sitting all over the place. And I was there and they talked for about an hour about how wonderful it is to be welcoming to a community and this is not going to happen here because of blah, blah, blah. And she went on and then they said, would you like to say anything, Mr. Allen? And I said, yes. And I said, let me tell you two things. First of all, we have a transaction that is 
binding uh, and is going to be uh, followed through in, without exception. And, and they said, well, what does that mean? They said, it says that this property is going to be sold uh, very, very expeditiously, and we intend to close on this very soon. That's number one. Number two, if you guys insist on continuing this kind of uh, rabble-rousing and so forth, I will have to take some action, and it will not be in the interest of Longmont because this will become a public record. And I will propel that public record of the fact that you're trying to be illegal in spite of the laws that are very clear on residences and so forth. They were very upset, obviously, with me. And they said the meeting is adjourned and they left. And that was the end of it. I had no contact with most people in community, with the exception of one family, uh, for six years until I got a letter. Uh, that said, we would like to invite you, the, this family, the Levines, Hal Levine and his wife, we'd like to invite you to a cocktail party uh, that we're having on Saturday night. And I, I said immediately, yes, I'll be available. And I came there. And to make a long story short, uh, he came over and, and said to me, what do you do? And I said, well, I happen to be an independent broker-dealer uh, with Wall Street and uh, so forth and so on. And he says, tell me about that. And I did. I gave him my elevator pitch, which lasted all of 10 minutes. And then <laughs> he said, wait a moment. You mean to tell me you have people working that you have trained to become uh, registered representatives and pass the Series 7 exam, which is a very tough exam? I said, yes. How many do you have? I said, at this point, it's over 60. He said, that's unbelievable. Uh, he said, why don't you do this? Here's my card. Give me a call on Monday. I'd like to set up a meeting with you to come to my office at the Pan Am building on Wednesday of this week at lunchtime. Can you make it? I said, yes, I'll be there. And that's how the newspaper article with the New York Times came about, because the person I was meeting was Robert Hershey, who was a financial correspondent for the New York Times, and read my story, did some checking, of course, and after a three-hour meeting, decided that I would go to the New York Times for a photograph, and the next part was history. I, I was in the newspaper the next morning. You opened that broker-dealer a few years prior to you buying the house in Larchmont. Um, you called the, the brokerage Creative Investor Services. Meanwhile, you were still had other jobs going on. You had um, your academic career. I mean, the amount of energy this must have taken uh, to me is just mind boggling. Um, so you were the first black owned broker dealer. Uh, then the New York Times decided to do a very positive story about your firm, which got picked up and, and, and I guess in effect syndicated your company grew from there that's right it went up uh, geometrically and um, uh, we had been doing a lot of uh, 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 seminars on wealth building in the black community and so forth we had maybe at that point 70 uh, registered reps that were selling uh, various types of securities mostly mutual funds and uh, and so forth but the new york times 
picked up the story. They called it Crash Course Creates Salesmen. And it was very dramatic. And it created a number of interesting things because other firms that had disregarded the possibilities of any income coming out of the black community said, wait a moment, this guy is doing this. He's got people out there selling and they're buying uh, all his securities. Why don't we check it out? And then all of a sudden you began to see more and more interest in advertising to the black community. And so, so that was one element. Of course, it, it mushroomed in the sense that more and more people said, wait a moment, let's take our discretionary funds and put them into uh, some type of capital building process. And that's where we came in. So it was a marvelous experience and it mushroomed our company. And then see Peter McCullough, who was the chairman of the board of the Xerox Corporation, came to me uh, and asked me if I would be interested in coming to a meeting at Xerox to talk about possibly joining the company. And I turned them down three times because I said, no, I'm working on my doctorate, which is being completed uh, at Fordham University. Uh, I'm also running a company of uh, broker dealers. I mean, not broker dealers, I'm saying, but of uh, registered representatives and <laughs> I am also a teacher at uh, Dewey Clinton High School. Uh, I'm sorry, Fordham University. So those things were coming together. And I said, it's not possible for me to get involved in, in an, a corporation at this point. But they said, look, forget about Fordham. We're going to offer you something that you're not going to be able to turn down. We'll triple whatever you're earning from all of these ventures. And we want you to come aboard and run our entire corporate-wide training program for sales, service, and management. And that was phenomenal opportunity. I said, wait a moment, I've got to look seriously into this. And many, many people told me, oh, no, don't even get involved. You got such a deluxe situation. Why would you go to a corporation where, you know, it's cutthroat and it's difficult? And you don't know who's friend or foe in these corporations. And I listened to all of this. And then I called and I told Xerox, yes, I will accept your offer. And I went there thinking it will last a couple of years. And then I'll go back to Fordham because Fordham said, don't worry, your job is going to be held for you. And guess what? It turned out to 10 years that I was an executive at Xerox, traveling in ranked Xerox throughout Europe and also within the United States, including Palo Alto Research Center, which was Xerox's unbelievable opportunity for the best scientists in the whole uh, field of uh, computer technology. So that was my uh, experience. And I was there from 1971 to 1981. Tell us a little bit more about this Xerox experience. To me, that's really fascinating. You were teaching them sales and best practices. What yeah. did you impart on them that couldn't be found elsewhere and that Xerox was so hungry for? That was very interesting. Xerox, first of all, said to me, I'd like you to go down to our training facility in uh, Florida. And uh, uh, I, I said, okay. And uh, I did go for a week. They had this thing right at the beach 
Uh, they had a hotel, the Sheridan Hotel, uh, and uh, I, I was shocked because the the training that they were giving to salesmen, just for example, was very primitive. It was not uh, uh, using any of the new technologies, none uh, none of the interactive methodology. Uh, students were sitting uh, in a theater style and and so forth. So when I came back after a week and all these uh, executives were sitting around a conference table asking me, okay, what did you think of our <laughs> training program? I wanted to say to them, look, this training program sucks. But I said, <laughs> let's, let's be diplomatic. So I said, there are certain deficiencies and I'd like to spell them out. And I could see they were writing on their yellow pads all the things I was saying, how we would do this and how we should do that. And the fact that the classroom should not be in a structured way, there should be circular training should be open for people to interact. The, the instructor should be sitting in the group circle and he should be talking. This all should be on tape so that the students could go back and reference what he had said to them and so forth. I, I had so many suggestions and I thought, okay, that takes you that Xerox is going to say goodbye and I'll go back to my <laughs> my routine. And they said to me, before you leave, we have a, a proposition. Uh, the chairman has told us that we should make you an offer. I said, an offer? They said, yes, we would like to make you an offer. And that will be that you will be in charge of the entire training facility in Leesburg, Virginia. We're building this $80 million living and learning facility, which we call the Xerox University, and you're going to be in charge. I said, this is phenomenal. And I have to think about it. They said, well, we'll give you three days. And then you get back to us and you tell us what you think you would like to do. And I called them back. And of course, I told them yes. And that's how my career at Xerox came about. It was very phenomenal because... After three years in Leesburg, Virginia, and that was a whole story in itself, because I told him, I said, I'm not prepared to live in Virginia. I'd like to live in Bethesda, Maryland. And I thought, okay, that would be the end of that. No, they said, no, that's fine. You want to live in Maryland, you find yourself a house, which I did. And they said to the person who is going to be in charge of the hotel facility, Bill Denning, you are now going to drive from McLean, Virginia, and pick this Winston Allen up and bring him to Leesburg on a daily basis and then return him home and so forth. I didn't know that all this machinery was taking place, but I saw Bill coming at 7.30 and driving me in his white Cadillac down there to McLean, uh, past McLean. And you know, the Beltway in Washington is very difficult in rush hour. And it was an hour and a half trip. And he would do that every day for three years. And I said, wow, this is quite an experience. And it wasn't until one day I, my wife, Ruby, and I went to one of their social events. And I said, Ruby, now be cool. He was a shoot from a hip kind of person. And she was very cool. And she told Bill Detting how much I loved to, the, the Xerox and all that. But then she said, can I speak to his wife? And I said, okay, Ruby, go ahead. And she went over there. And all I can remember, uh, across the room in this social event, this woman saying, poor Wynn, 
Paul Bill. And I said, oh, <laughs> well, you can't imagine what I said, but I realized that Ruby had exploded this whole thing. And guess what? The wife had told Bill, this is it. You're not going to get up at 5.30 every morning and drive all the way up to Bethesda to pick the twin Allen up and drive him down and bring him back in the evening. I said, and that's when uh, it was a, a very catastrophic period because it came to the attention of Peter McCullough. And Peter said, who's the chairman of the board? Uh, he said, wait a moment. No way are you going to get rid of this guy because this was the plan. I would be terminated and I would give my uh, get six months and all that and severance pay. And he said, no, Wynn is going over to Dusseldorf, Germany in two weeks. And he is going to be in charge of the rank Xerox training program. And that includes London and Amsterdam and Dusseldorf and so forth. And I didn't know how I was going to make this transition. He said, you got two weeks to find a house close enough to Stanford where the corporate headquarters is located. And I was lucky because I found a house which is ideal in, in Westport, Connecticut. And so that's where I've been living for 48 years. And it's a landmarked house, we should add, right? Well, it's uh, quite a unique building and structure. It was so marvelous because it comes out of the Mies van der Rohe School of Modern Architecture. And the fact that I lucked into uh, a, ro a broker uh, who said, when she heard I was going to be executive at Xerox, said, send him in here. And I came into her office and she said, wow, I've been trying to get my relocation business going in Xerox for five years. And every time I think I have it sold up, somebody on the inside cuts me out. And guess what? Now I could have a friend in Xerox in high places. So I said, oh, okay. She said, what kind of house are you looking for? Well, I gave her my wish list. It's got to be near the water. It should be ultra-modern. It should be a famous uh, architect and so forth. She said, let's get in the car. Get in the car. My wife and I, we drove over. We saw this house in 15 minutes. I said, Ruby, this is it. She said, I know. This is your dream house. And I said, but I'm going to leave. And then the next day, I sent her a check for the a third of the price. The house was selling for $142,000. And I sent her the deposit because I knew I had to move very quickly. And she called me back in three hours after it was wired to her. And she said, you are now the owner of this Burris Landing property. And that was the beginning of a whole story, which is also very interesting. And you've lived there since, and you love um, your home. So back to the reassignment to the German markets. Did that mean you flew into Germany every so often and had extended periods in Germany? Exactly. I flew into Germany. Dusseldorf was the headquarters at that time for Rank Xerox in, in, in Europe. And London, of course, was also headquarters. So I was flying between uh, the United States and uh, and these various uh, capitals uh, and meeting with the uh, executives in their training facilities. And while I was not telling them what to do, my job was to influence them to move in a direction that uh, Peter McCullough felt was very productive for us. Their numbers were not as great as our numbers in terms of productivity and the reduction of the cost. And so 
He said, this is the way we want to go. And most of them did. And it was very successful. I wanted to ask you about sales because you were in sales and you you taught these um, dynamic salespeople and highly motivated and were very big into their careers. What what in your view is the essence of sales? Can anybody sell or can you be taught to be a good salesperson? It's a good question. Very good question. Because over the years, I have found that anybody cannot sell. Okay, it doesn't happen that way. You have to have that germ that says you are a motivator. You are a very intricate person that understands the dynamics of human beings and you can talk to them in a language that they understand. And if you have all those qualities and you're persevering and you're confident and you are able to communicate very quickly, the facts that will be beneficial to their needs, you will be a very successful salesperson. And that's the kind of persons that I always attracted myself to because I knew they had the potential to be successful. If you don't have that, if you're not a risk taker, if you don't have super confidence, you probably are not going to be a successful salesperson. I had a great friend in sales once. He was a top manager. And I learned a few things listening to him. I wasn't in sales. The thing that struck me was he said it's closing the deal. Yes. That he mentioned that closing the deal. And I was often wondering what was he talking about. But I, I, I took it to mean that you could wine and dine a client, take them out, and they love you and you're hugging and kissing. But if you can't put the paper on the table and say, hey, sign the dotted line here and give me the deposit check, right? You can't do it. That is so, so important. For example, uh, just one little a statement that I used to use in training salespeople, I would say, let's say you made your proposition, you kept it simple, you got to their needs, not your needs, their needs, and you explain how this problem was going to be resolved by using whatever the formula was. And then when you make your pitch, stop talking. Shut up. That's it. Silence. Because the first person that talks after that loses. <laughs> and they learned that technique. It made all the difference. Because so many times, salesmen, after they have done their sales pitch, they keep talking. And they talk themselves out of a sale. And I'm saying that I found that if they understand that you don't control the person's thinking, let them think the process through and then come back to you, you have a good chance of completing a transaction successfully. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the US are hungry. This breaks my heart and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. My guest is Dr. Winston E. Allen, founder of the first black-owned broker-dealer in America. He's out with his new book, I Pride Open Wall Street in 1962, Overcoming Barriers, Hurdles and Obstacles. I'm your host, John 
Aiden Byrne. So Creative Investor Services, do you did you eventually sell that company or do you still have a passive interest in it? No, I did sell it. It was sold to a firm in Florida and it was very successful sale, but I had the f- the f- firm from 1962 when the company started and it was interesting i didn't want my name to be on the company the allen security company like uh, goldman sachs or lehman brothers or jp morgan i said let's find this thing that works for people creative because it's different investor because that's what we're going to be doing and services because that's what the company is going to do. We're going to provide services, not just selling and moving on, but staying with the customers. And we have stayed with them for 30, 40 years. And some of them have taken their sales and they have made their profitable situation, paid for their education for their kids and gone to the places that they wanted and so forth. But my point was always make sure that you are able to deliver on whatever you promise. And that's the essence of successful selling. So the Creative Investor Services continued until it was sold about two and a half years ago. And I have no contact with it anymore, although I still am a broker dealer because you keep that for a period of two years and you can then attach yourself to another company. And I'm open for that possibility because my two years is still not finished. You've written about uh, your experiences, your early life, your college, being a professor, setting up your own firm, working at the Syrax Corporation. In your new book, I pried open Wall Street in 1962, that's the headline on it, Overcoming Barriers, Hurdles and Obstacles. And it's a personal memoir, Winston E. Allen, PhD. Let's go back to the beginning and um, your train journey and segregation in America and how you saw it then and how you see it now. I mean, the civil rights movement was a campaign in the 1950s and 1960s for black Americans to gain, rightfully so, equal rights under the law in the United States. It was We went through the Rosa Parks era, the Civil Rights Act of 1957. We went through the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Then we had the Fair Housing Act of 1968. So for all intents and purposes, um, institutional racism has been eradicated in America, which is not to say that there's not a residue of maybe cultural racism, what people keep in their hearts, but it's a much better place, um, I would hope, And yet we see the country is so divided and we see a lot of polarization and um, a lot of strife. How how do you actually see it today? Well, it's very interesting that we have a a cyclical situation in the United States. It doesn't move geometrically. It doesn't move uh, steadily. And you don't understand everything that's going on. But there are many, many residues that remain. And the history, of course, of the United States is very uh, convoluted, and it has a lot of issues that people need to know more about. But to just get to the bottom line, uh, the opportunities are there. 
And I always believe that for every difficulty, if you are really perceptive, you will find the opportunity that will make a difference. And that's what I have always pursued as my ultimate objective. Yes, difficulties I, I had in my lifetime, and I had many opportunities that were extraordinary. <clears throat> so I think there's a balancing there. I think that uh, it's not to be downplayed the fact that there is uh, optimism if a person equips themselves to take advantage of whatever opportunities come along whenever they do come along. And that's the ultimate, because everybody has difficulties. And I don't believe that difficulties can create such impossible conditions that you cannot survive and prosper if you are willing to put in the heavy labor and legwork and perseverance and tenacity that is required. And that's what I think is, is the answer ultimately. There is no question that it's going to be successful because over the years, the situation was so impossible and we don't have to go into the whole slavery period, but we know that that was all but impossible and yet there was survival. And therefore, there is an opportunity to take any condition and make sure that there is going to be a prosperous way to function even in the most debilitating circumstances. But you're telling me that people of all classes, races and creeds, for the most part in America, have a great opportunity to succeed if they will take the time, effort, get an education or a vocation, and, and they can succeed. You are a classic example of it. Well, I believe this is definitely true, and I believe, and that's one of the reasons why I, I've taken the time to write three books because I feel that this gives inspiration and motivation to people who might feel, oh, it's not worth it. I don't want to do all of this because I don't see the end result. I have had so many people that have told me just reading the books and seeing the difficulties that I overcame has changed their life. And they pass it on to their children and their grandchildren to read this book and get the motivation that they need to conquer the problems that they're facing. So I have no doubt that it's doable. It, and I will mentor many people along the lines of finding a way to accomplish whatever needed to be accomplished. Uh, I have gotten people to go to the universities who said, no, I don't have the money. And I got scholarships. One person went to uh, Japan and got a $68,000 scholarship from Rotary and became a, uh, a master's in, in uh, public administration and is now being profitably rewarded and so forth. So things can happen, but it's got to take planning and, and, and a willingness to work at it until you accomplish your goal. If you were to sum it up and to maybe comment, um, things have ra have greatly improved for the black community and for, in air quotes, for the minority communities. I've spoken to other commentators 
social workers and political leaders and they've said to me they, they've, they've brought this up and your, your your insight would be really interesting um that part of the problem or let's call it the legacy if you will for the black community that maybe hasn't caught up and has fallen behind is to do with the collapse of the black family in America, going back to the opening up of the great society in the 1960s, the um, the, the welfare state. And I mean, that's a whole other separate discussion. And, and indeed, we may be seeing that happening in the white community now. There's, in other words, the, the rise of single parenthood, uh, the rise of, um, of families that just don't have any stability in their life and just their communities are just broken down. Yes. Um, at the bottom of so much of this is the economics. Economics is the key. In a capitalistic society, if the economics is not there in your family or if there is a breakdown in the family, uh, it's going to come back to the fact that you are not going to be able to be successful if you cannot compete economically in the society. In spite of all of the difficulties, and we know that they're there and so forth, and they're well reported. My problem with the whole concept of, well, it's defeatism, because we don't want to be, uh, you know, categorized as a group that's not successful, and therefore we are the cause of the problem. The problem has roots that go way, way back. And the fact that education was denied when a person was in subterfuge and all the rest of that. But the fact of the matter is, again, given the opportunities that are now there, there is a way of meeting these. And it's not only in the black community, it's also in the white community. Because if the economics is not there, it means that there will not be the progression that would be normally expected of a group that has had more opportunities than uh, than people of color. So I think that we can use the commonality, find a way to see what is the best solution to an individual problem. Now, broken families, of course, create a number of problems, not only for the couple, but for the offspring. So we know that that has ramifications. So all those things of how to create a climate where there can be more compatibility and so forth is is helpful. Uh, I found in my experience that I took a very difficult position because I said I will not limit myself to living only in segregated communities. I would not do that. And therefore, I chose to go into communities that were extremely repressive, and they had closed communities. Now, that's taking on a big risk and a big challenge. And if you are willing to put up with it, it has ramifications. Uh, if I had not gone to Launchmont, I would not have been able to meet the opportunity for a Hal Levine, who was the president of a public relations firm to give me what was million dollar worth of publicity and promotion at a critical time, 1968, July 31st, 
That was the most difficult period in the civil rights movement. We had gone through the sit-ins and the freedom rights and the whole repressive period and the bombing in Alabama. We had gone through the Rosa Parks story and the Emmett Till story. So if you found a one year <laughs> that culminated all of this, 68 was the year. Jake, uh, Martin Luther King's assassination, Robert Kennedy's assassination, the, the whole uh, Democratic Party's uh, problems, police department and all the rest in Chicago, the million and a half kids on the street in New York City for a teacher strike, which was promulgated by the whole issue of community control of education because what was taking place up to that point was perceived not to be productive. All of that came together in 1968. So I'm saying, yes, there is a history here that is enormously uh, important to understand. But even with all of that, we found a way to move the ball a little bit further. And yes, this is a divided community, but it's the boom and bust again. The cyclical problems will resolve themselves and we will move forward again, I do believe. And I think I hear you saying also a busy, active uh, life dedicated to work, education, sports, family. You have no time to go off on the, uh, the wrong tracks unless, of course, there's some kind of a weird disruption all around us, which a lot of us have no control over in the end. You have set a great example. You're also the author of Don't Get Mad, Get Rich. You're also the author of Live a Purposeful and Meaningful Life. The name of your new book is I Pride Open Wall Street in 1962, Overcoming Barriers, Hurdles and Obstacles. My final question, you're doing multiple projects at any one time. You're a really busy and engaged um, entrepreneur, businessman and successful author. Your legacy, how would you like to be remembered by the world, by society, by your peers, by your family? That's a very good question, and I think it's an excellent question as a combination, because I think legacy is so important, because you have to know that in future generations, people can learn about what you did and be inspired by it. I read history books all the time, biographies, and I'm inspired by the stories that I read. So my legacy, I hope, shows take on difficult tasks, Dedicate yourself to them. Work unbelievably difficult circumstances. When people say, no, it cannot be done, don't take that as an absolute. Say, yes, it can be done. I will find a way. If this is what I choose to do, I am going to be successful. That's the way I feel. And if I can leave that as my legacy, I think it will be a worthwhile story that could be told. And I'm told that this story of my book, I Pride Open Wall Street in 1962, Critical Years, is the makings of a film that could be very, very helpful and monumental. And that's my goal now, to move in the direction of someone who's out there 
who is willing to make a commitment to make lots of money for themselves by taking this story that's sitting there in book form with all the documentation, with all the uh, pictures, with all of the evidence to show that every story is able to be proven to be factual and turn that into a prize-winning film. That's the ultimate objective which I have. And if I'm successful in that respect, then I think, wow, <laughs> this would be a very interesting legacy. Well, I look forward to that movie coming out and uh, I'll see you walking the red carpet. <laughs> well, <laughs> Dr. Winston Allen, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this great opportunity. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. 973-529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com. Burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.